Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Murders, unfortunately, occur even in the national park system, though rarely. Sadly, this past week we saw one committed on the Appalachian National Scenic Trail in Virginia. You can find the details at nationalparkstraveler.org. This past week, the Traveler also had a feature about a couple's 10-day canoe trip down the Green River into Canyonlands National Park. We also reported on a counterculture site in Death Valley National Park that the Park Service has decided to preserve to reflect that segment of American history. And from Grand Canyon National Park came word of a fossilized trackway dating back roughly 280 million years to the Permian Age. You can find those and other stories at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we've arranged a roundtable of sorts to discuss current events, if you will, in the national park system. Long hailed as America's best idea, the national park system constantly faces issues that must be overcome to support that slogan. There's the maintenance backlog, which is estimated at nearly $12 billion. Some plant and animal species in the parks are teetering on extinction. Air quality is less than we'd like in many parks, and overcrowding is an issue in some. To discuss those issues, We've invited Phil Francis, who chairs the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and Kristen Brengel, Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association, to join us. Thank you both. You're welcome. Thanks, Kurt. You know, one of the things that can't be escaped is that two years ago, we went through an incredible transformation in the federal government and the approach to managing public lands in the national parks. Is it too too extreme to say that um, the, the current administration is jeopardizing the health of the park system? Not at all. In fact, I am sitting in front of a list that we keep here at NPCA of every administrative action that has been taken since Inauguration Day, and it's extensive. On this list is everything from rolling back protections for national monuments to leasing oil and gas near national parks to rolling back Endangered Species Act protections, and the list just goes on and on. This administration has also recommended budget cuts for the Park Service, and this is not a good time to do that when we have had a real energized uh, group of folks wanting to go visit national parks. And we've, in some cases, some national parks have seen visitation uh, increase in double digits and in terms of percentages. And so uh, this administration will leave a legacy on national parks, and I'm afraid it's not going to be a good one. Phil? I agree with Kristen. Uh, I joined the National Park Service in 1972 and spent 41 years with the national parks, and I've never seen anything like this before. I think morale was probably at the lowest point that I've ever seen, and it's understandable why. You know, when positions are being reduced by significant amounts, double-digit numbers, uh, we've lost thousands of employees. We've lost their capacity to serve the public as well as we traditionally have. And the men and women of the National Park Service really love what they do, and they hold that mission up very high. They're very idealistic, and we're not able to protect and preserve the natural and cultural resources and serve the public in a way they've been accustomed to. And so it's a time that's uh, 
very challenging mentally. And it's, um, I think about uh, the extra time our employees have given over the years, helping to save lives and provide outstanding service, and now to be treated with re- proposals to reduce the budgets by double digits each year after 10 years of, of inadequate budgets. So the impact of that, the cumulative impact, is devastating. And so it's, it's really tough. I really feel for our employees. And I hope that uh, somehow uh, the American public will stand up and say, you know, this there's enough of this. We need to turn this around. The national parks are important. Uh, let's make a difference. Yeah, you know, depending on the which side of the political divide that you sit on, um, those on the the right side might say that you know under the Obama administration and the, and the Clinton administration, we went too far the other way that we were protecting too much land that we weren't allowing for enough oil and gas leasing. Uh, certainly, we see it in in recent years. States like Utah, where they they believe that their voices aren't being heard in the management of, of public lands and they're trying to get public lands transferred to the state. Is there no hope for balance in, in how we manage our public resources? Well, I, I mean, I would argue that a lot of these administrations in the past did seek balance. They were looking for opportunities for protection and they did do development. And as you know, Kurt, we've seen so much planning on the ground on BLM lands. And one of the things that the Obama administration did was pursue renewables at a very, very rapid pace. And in some cases got crosswise with us in the California desert and Nevada desert, where they were proposing uh, solar and wind projects that were on extremely sensitive lands. And so Every administration has an angle for sure. Uh, in the case of Obama, it was renewables, and it was, um, I remember at some points going into the Interior Department and, and, you know, begging them to slow down on some of it. And so each administration sort of pursues that balance in the way that they, they want to. In the Clinton administration, we saw rapid increase in off-road vehicle use on public lands uh, that happened, and it was sort of out of control at the time. And so but the BLM at the time was not telling the off-road vehicle enthusiasts to stop what they were doing. And so, you know, every administration has its issues for sure. And, and depending on where the American public is at that time, where the oil and gas market is at that time, uh, whether you want to pursue renewables, there's different pressure depending on, you know, what decade we're talking about here. But, um, you know, the the land protection piece of it you know, there are some states uh, like the one that you sit in, Kurt, that have been having this debate for decades upon decades upon decades about how uh, public lands should be utilized. And so, you know, it's not going to go away and it's going to change, you know, with the next administration. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add to it. You know, it really doesn't matter if you're right or left or you're Republican or, or Democrat is, is the uh, policies and the level of support that's given, just as Kristen was saying, you know, we've had some pretty bad budgets under Democratic administrations, and uh, we've criticized the administration or the Congress, and, and, and it really doesn't matter. We're really interested in protecting, you know, meeting the mission of the National Park Service and being able to serve the public well. So that's what that's what I want to see is, and, and 
who knows what the next administration might bring. And there's a lot of competing interests, but we're certainly here to help protect the interests of the national parks. How much responsibility does Congress bear? I mean, there's a National Parks Congress in, or a National Parks Caucus in Congress. Um, we've seen efforts to pass legislation to address the, the maintenance backlog, and yet uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of traction in that direction. There doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, oversight in, in what the administration is doing with public lands. Um, should, should Congress be held more responsible for what's going on? Of course. Congress should absolutely be held accountable like the administration. They end up having the final say on what the Park Service budget is. And so anyone listening to this should always pick up the phone and call your member and make sure that they know you want investments to be made in national parks, Uh, whether it's in improving the parks and fixing the parks, like the Restore Our Parks bill to take care of the maintenance backlog, or if it's for programs that you think are excellent in parks, like the Heritage Area Program or the Underground Railroad Network to Freedom. These programs are extremely valuable for for so many communities. And so Congress is ultimately responsible for making sure they get the funding and support they need. You know, this Congress in particular that just, just, just came in after the election, they're just getting started. They had several oversight hearings on a number of topics from water infrastructure to climate change. We've seen uh, quite a few hearings on the impacts of climate change on on public lands and national parks. We're going to continue to see them. We saw the passage of even um, a climate change bill in Congress, but they are just getting started on on working on legislation. And right now, as I sit here in Washington, D.C., we are uh, in the midst of doing appropriations for the National Park Service and other public lands and the Environmental Protection Agency. And so, yeah, they need to engage. They need to engage more. They need to do more oversight of the administration. We are, you know, watching the administration right now. Uh, they are getting dangerously close to repealing important regulations on endangered and threatened species. We could see the wildlife regulations in Alaska upended, and, and we could see terrible hunting practices like spotlighting. Uh, bear cubs and wolf cubs and dens uh, in Alaska, something that we thought was settled a few years ago. They've resurrected. So Congress should be doing oversight, making sure that the administration is in compliance with the law. And uh, that's an important role that they play. And and we're hoping that Mr. Grijalva, the chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee and and others are going to do the due diligence to make sure that um, all of this is happening. Well, they really do have a tough job, too. I I must say, I went to a hearing years ago where they talked about 100 different alternatives and going forward in this country, and, and all of them were less than satisfactory. It's very difficult with limited funds, and when the budget's allocated among the different interior agencies and among all the government, and there's a lot of pressure to... Uh, to spend money in different places and the non-discretionary non-defense uh, or discretionary non-defense uh, agencies like the National Park Service, Interior, National Institute for Health, and a lot of imp- very important agencies to the American public, you know, only represent about 13% of the total federal budget. Uh, and the interest in the national debt is going up. Military spending is going up. 
And so at the end of the day, it's hard to find the money that the Congress needs to support the national parks in a way. So it's really important that we advocate and make sure that our interests are heard and and the Congress be reminded how important not only it is to the mental health of America and how it is how important it is to the uh, history and our preservation of our special places, but it's also an economic engine for our country. And to underfund the national parks and not provide the kind of services I fear might reduce the number of visitors and lessen that economic benefit to all Americans. But they've got a very difficult job. And uh, as far as I can tell, I've checked a number of offices. I haven't seen any printing presses so they can print money in any of those offices. But um, well, and that's I think time. we've got to speak up. Yeah. At the same time, though, we're, we're seeing um, billions of dollars somehow materializing to bail out the farmers who are being hurt by uh, the, the tariffs. And where's that money coming from? Yeah, that's a good question, Kurt. And I, I don't know. And uh, there seems to be a sense from what I've read that the idea of pay as you go seems to be less important than it was. So I'm not sure where that money came from. But I do know the competition is great, and uh, and I think our, as Kristen was saying, I, I think our the Congress now is really interested in helping the national parks, and they've taken some positive steps, and uh, I'm very hopeful that they'll be able to do more. But uh, they need support. We're visiting today with Kristen Brengel, the Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association, and Phil Francis, who chairs the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. You know, one thing that's, that's kind of interesting is, is uh, personnel matters in the National Park Service and the, the Interior Department. What I'm referring to is we're halfway through uh, President Trump's term in office, and there still is no permanent Park Service director. Um, at the same time, just the other week, um, the nomination of Rob Wallace as Assistant Secretary of Interior with oversight of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks um, was announced. Any comments on these two uh, personnel matters? 
Well, first, I, I want to start by saying that not having a park service director for two years, it shows a lot. Not having that leadership and not having someone who's speaking on behalf of the employees and really bringing that perspective. You can tell back here in Washington, D.C. when there's no Park Service director. And I think one of the most emblematic examples of that is the shutdown and how that was handled. The fact that we allowed parks to get as damaged as they did during the shutdown and who was speaking on behalf of them. It just wasn't clear that there was a real advocate in the Interior Department for these wonderful places. We were watching Joshua Tree and Death Valley and Yosemite. We were seeing incidents happen and garbage pile up on the mall here in Washington, D.C. If you walk down to the mall during the beginning of the shutdown, you saw garbage piling up everywhere. And, you know, when there's a Park Service director, the superintendents and other staff have someone to talk to about what's going on. And it was just absolutely evident that that was not occurring at all, you know, and then the answer was to use fees that go toward taking care of the maintenance backlog in parks in order to keep these parks that were, that should have just been closed, but to keep them open and to force the superintendents to keep them open. Um, In some cases, it was kind of a biohazard. You know, there were people who were, there was human waste all over the place in some of these parks, but no, the political folks at Interior wanted to keep them open because they wanted to save face and see, you know, make sure we could keep parks open. So in their exuberance to want to keep parks open, even though they were getting damaged, there was no one to tell them, you know, this isn't such a good idea. And so, it, you know, it's just depressing to think that, you know, some folks, some political appointees don't have the wherewithal to realize that they need to, they, that they have a stewardship responsibility above, above politics. And they chose politics over parks. And that was depressing. But typically, a park service director, and Phil, you can correct me if I'm wrong, would step in and say, hey, (laughs) you know, we may want to take a different approach here. Um, And maybe the best face-saving thing you could do is actually let these parks close down. But for those who can't remember what happened or uh, weren't paying as close attention as we were, uh, Joshua Tree tried to, to make some closures in order to protect certain campgrounds and certain sites and stop illegal off road use. And basically, once they made the announcement to uh, close certain areas of the park, they were basically told to turn that decision around the next day. And so if there were actual leadership, I I just don't feel like these things would have happened the way that they did happen during the shutdown. But that's just one example, one example of the wrong turns that have been made by this administration. But absolutely, these um, positions are essential in terms of making sure there's good stewardship of the parks and the superintendents have a person to talk to about things that are going on. In terms of the recent nomination of Rob Wallace... Hey, Kristen, Kristen, can I I interrupt you? I'd like to get Phil's perspective. I mean, he spent four decades in the park system, park service uh, superintendent for a while. Um, How how important is it to have a permanent director as opposed to an acting director? Well, Kristen's exactly right. It's very important. You always want someone that's going to be in a job like that, that's going to have some continuity over time, that's going to... Uh, devise a program. You know, when Bob Stan became director, you know, he really emphasized interpretation. He emphasized reaching out to diverse audiences, inviting everyone to, to come in and be part of the national parks. Uh, but with a temporary person, it's like a, a substitute teacher. No offense to the substitute teachers out there, but, you know, the students know that the, that the teacher is going to be there for a couple of days a year, and that's about it. And so uh, different things go on. 
during that time. I think that's very true right now of having an acting director. Uh, the other thing, I think, with regard to pushback, you know, there's a lot of things that are very visible, like the uh, shut government shutdown that Kristen mentioned, uh, and it was not well handled at all. But there's a lot of other things happening that are more invisible and not as uh, open and on display, but like the reorganization of the National Park Service and the creation of new regional offices that are going to be filled in all likelihood by political appointees. And the National Park Service argued uh, very hard years ago when the SES positions were created in the government that the National Park Service should not be a political agency, that we had a very clear mission and we were too important. And so things like that, the uh, the change in the personnel uh, rules and regulations with regard to hiring seasonals, the fact that the uh, opening dates and national parks have been delayed because of new systems put in place and taking money away from regional offices that provide oversight and assistance to parks. Uh, the sexual harassment issues the National Park Service has experienced, I think, are in part because of the change in uh, funding and allocation and emphasis uh, by the leadership of the National Park Service. And so there are many effects, and uh, hopefully Rob Wallace, who has some experience with the National Park Service back in the 80s as a seasonal and Grand Teton, uh, will come in and help provide some stability and some guidance and some leadership, and hopefully fill the director's job on a full-time basis. Yeah, obviously his nomination is, is very interesting because of his background with the National Park Service as a congressional liaison with the Park Service, and uh, he even sits on the, the board of directors of the Grand Teton National Park Foundation. D- does his um, uh, nomination perhaps signal a change in how uh, this administration will, will treat the national parks? We hope so. Um, it's a good sign uh, that he would be chosen um, because he, he is respected among Park Service professionals, at least those that you, that worked with him at one time. And so I, I've been told, and um, other park retirees like Phil, uh, who who know who knew Rob, said that he is fair. And so that'll be good. And like Phil said, uh, hopefully um, Wallace's nomination moving forward will signal the renomination of David Vela, the superintendent of Grand Teton, to be who's now the deputy director of the Park Service. We're hoping that they forward his nomination as Park Service director uh, soon as well. Phil, any thoughts on Rob? Well, I don't know him well. I mean, I was in a completely different position and didn't interact with the Office of Legislative Affairs uh, back in the 80s when he was in that job. And I and I didn't know him when he worked in the Congress. But people I respect in the National Park Service who do know him well um, have high regard for him. So we're hopeful. But we'll see what happens in this political climate. Uh, we've got our fingers crossed, and we're hoping for the best. And and, and hopefully some improvements can be made. They're desperately needed. We're visiting today with Phil Francis, uh, the chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and Kristen Brengel, vice president of government affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. 
it is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, non-profit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. We're back now with Kristen Brengel, Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association, and Phil Francis, who chairs the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We've been talking about the um, acting positions at the, the top of the um, National Park Service in Washington and uh, vacancies in the Interior Department. Across the National Park System, there also are some key vacancies um, that are being filled by acting positions, such as the acting director of the Intermountain Regional Office, the Midwest Regional Office, and the National Capital Regional Office. Are those um, problem areas having an acting position in there as opposed to a, a full-time uh, confirmed person? Well, I, th- I think so. I th- yeah, I think so. You know, one of the things the regional directors do is they get more involved in details. The regional politics, they get involved in the details and oversight of the parks. Not only oversight to make sure that parks are doing the right things, but also help and provide support. Uh, Many of the smaller parks don't have engineers. They don't have planners. They don't have the necessary staff to accomplish all the goals they need to meet. And so uh, regional offices are very important. Right now, they're only at about half staff. And back in the 1990s, there were 10 regional offices, and each of those regional offices were staffed with over 250 employees to support all these uh, parks. Uh, three, back in those days, it was 300 and some odd parks. And now there's 419 parks, and there's only seven regional offices, and there's only about 120 people working in each one of those regional offices. So. Uh, the oversight and guidance, the continuity, the institutional memory has all been affected. 
by these uh, vacancies and ana- inadequate funding. They really should. But again, it goes back to this personnel issue in part. And I guess there's also maybe a political side of this. I'm not sure. That's what people speculate. But those jobs are very important and need to be filled as soon as possible. You know, the political side of it, um, you mentioned the reorganization effort by the Interior Department. We've reported at The Traveler on how um, that reorganization could basically leave the National Park Service director um, without authority to do many things, that there would be uh, political appointees made by the Interior Department in each of the regions that are proposed. Kristen, you've probably been pretty close to this, and what's how is Congress looking at this reorganization? I know... Uh, Representative Grijalva wanted to take a close look at it. Is there any anything you can update us with? You know, it's, I'm glad you raised it. There is language that the Interior Appropriations Bill uh, has as of today that the bill was just released. And so it does look like Congress is taking a close look at the reorganization and starting to think about sideboards they would want to put on it. When Secretary Bernhardt testified last week, He talked about sort of the narrow focus of of the reorg on the Bureau of Land Management. But, you know, our our concern, our ultimate concern, uh, as Phil was talking about earlier, is making sure that the Park Service can fulfill its stewardship responsibilities. And if they have a political regional person over them, and that person is not just doing oversight on the Park Service, but the Bureau of Land Management and, and other agencies, that person may not have expertise on on park stewardship and not understand how you implement these laws and policies and the mission of the park service. And so our worry is is that where this is headed is not going to be in a good direction for parks and, and making sure that these are the best protected places in the country. And so we're going to take a careful look at what the interior bill has inserted in it in terms of what the sideboards might be for the for the reorganization. But um, honestly, I feel like it's a complete waste of money. And <laughs> me too. Um, and it's sort of like you know, just uh, restacking the the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's there are other more important things to spend millions upon millions of dollars on. And this reorg was something that former Secretary Zinke wanted to do. It never completely made sense to folks, and so hopefully Congress will sort of set the new Interior Secretary in a direction of just ending this. Have they floated a dollar figure attached to the reorganization plan? I think it's something around $28 million that the administration was asking for, for FY20. I think that's right. It's in the $20 million. You can run the most visited national park unit in the country for over one and a half years for that kind of money. And uh, so I don't think that spending it on creating political offices, as they suggested, is the highest and best use of those dollars. Yeah. Speaking of dollars, um, we can't escape the maintenance backlog. It's roughly $12 billion. Um, It's interesting in in covering the national parks on a day-to-day basis, as we do here at The Traveler, um, there was a a situation at Yellowstone National Park where they wanted to replace this bridge um, over um, one of the rivers near the south entrance of the park, and they came up with a preferred alternative, and they said, we will implement this when and if funding becomes available. 
at Acadia National Park. They just signed off on their transportation plan, which calls for um, no small amount of money. But again, it's kind of got one of those caveats that it will be implemented when and if funding becomes available. How do we solve this this situation? I mean, we've got a nearly $12 billion backlog. We've got parks trying to move forward with better management of the parks, and yet they can't get the money to implement these things. And it kind of goes back to Congress and the question I asked earlier about, you know, what type of accountability does Congress um, hold in these issues? And why can't we get the, the backlog funding pushed through? And why can't we get adequate budgets for the Park Service pushed through? Well, let me, let me just give my opinion. You know, back in early 1980s, the National Park Service budget was one-eighth of one percent of the federal budget. Now it's about one-fifteenth of one percent of the federal budget. And so the federal budget is growing faster than the National Park Service budget. If if the uh, Restore Parks Act had been passed and the use of LWCF money had become available, then the National Park Service could have made a multi-year plan where they develop the capacity necessary to address this backlog, and then they would have the funds as well in order to uh, actually pay for the projects that would address the backlog, at least in part. I think that was a very reasonable alternative. But there's another side to this, and, and that is, you know, right now our maintenance staffs in national parks are depleted, and so that's creating a new backlog as time goes forward. So it seems we need a two-part strategy. We need the capital. We need to develop increased capacity to manage contracts and projects on the ground. We also need to make more investment in the day-to-day maintenance operations so that these, I've forgotten what the total asset value in the National Park Service is, but it's billions of dollars. And it's worthy of investment. So we're going to have to find a funding source, and LWCF seems to be the best bet. Any thoughts, Kristen? There are some opportunities um, to start whittling away at the maintenance backlog. One is um, this interior appropriations bill that just got introduced yesterday that mm. um, may have some appropriations increases for construction and to solve some of the maintenance issues. Then there are some potential opportunities on the transportation side in terms of funding what we call mega projects. These are the, the price ta- the, these are the projects that have very large price tags associated with them, like the Yellowstone Loop Road, the shuttle bus system in Zion, things that are, are costing you know millions upon millions of dollars. And then we are at a stage right now where Congress is starting to put together a new transportation reauthorization bill. And so we should see the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee potentially coming out with a transportation. This is a sort of five-year bill that they come out with that projects uh, planning into the future in terms of transportation projects. So this includes new projects and old projects. But this is an opportunity to look at this bill and to see if we can uh, reduce the maintenance backlog in the park, at least on the transportation side, which is about half of the entire Park Service maintenance backlog. I think people forget that parks have bridges and tunnels and culverts and all sorts of transportation attributes in them. And so these assets need to, you know, be repaired or upgraded, uh, brought up to better standards. And so there is hope. 
and there may be a couple of avenues and channels to, to run down back here on where we can better fund uh, parks on both the transportation side and the non-transportation side. But the Restore Our Parks bill, we just I just came off of Capitol Hill where we had an excellent press event with mm. um, Senators Portman and Warner and King and uh, Representative Bishop and Representative Kilmer all spoke at the event. This bill has momentum and it has, there's a lot of excitement around it. And that's, that's kind of what you need in order to move forward. And there seems to be, you know, an incredible amount of bipartisan support to move the bill. And, and that's, you need energy. When you're here in DC, you need momentum and energy. And I think the bill has it. We just have to figure out where it fits into the grand scheme with the transportation funding and other, other bills that are moving here in DC. That's good news. You know, one thing um, we've seen across the national park system, and many, many national parks are grappling with it, are crowds. Lots of people are coming out to enjoy the national parks and see the wonders and learn the country's history. And it's, it's just really uplifting to see that. But at the same time, the, the crowding is having an impact on the natural resources and on the, um, the strained park service staff across the country. At, uh, as I mentioned, at Acadia, they're, they're working on a, um, they've approved a management plan to better handle the crowding in the national park there. Um, at Zion National Park, they're trying to figure out a plan. At Arches National Park, they're trying to figure out a plan. At Yellowstone, I could go on and on. One of the possible suggestions for um, Arches National Park in dealing with the congestion at the entrance station is to build another road into the park, come down from the north. What's the solution there? I mean, should the national parks be reservation only across the board? Well, there's no need to make them reservation, all of them reservation only, as you know. The Statue of Liberty, Alcatraz, uh, Independence Hall, they all have reservation systems. You have to get a ticket ahead of time in order to go see the park. And so we've already tested this within the park system and know that these can work if you inform the public about them. So, and it's, it's needed in those parks. A lot of people want to visit them and it's good for certainty for visitors to know, I got my ticket. I know I'm going to get into Independence Hall at 11 o'clock today. And so they're not bad things. They, they provide families with certainty when they're making their once in a lifetime trip to some of these places. For Arches, the challenges and uh, the great Denny Galvin, who was a former deputy director of the Park Service and longtime retiree, you know, every park has its own challenges depending on how um, its transportation infrastructure has been built. And in Arches, it's mostly a wilderness park, which means that it's it doesn't have many roads. And people want to predominantly get to Delicate Arch in order to do the climb and see that beautiful arch that we see all over the license plates in Utah. And so um, it's impossible to park there when there are a lot of people. And the last time I was there a couple of years ago, uh, you know, I was surprised at how quickly I got into the park and was able to get to Delicate. And then I had to illegally park in an RV spot. <laughs> so, you know, I, would it be a better experience for people if they knew that they could get into the park and have a parking spot once they got there so that they could see Delicate Arch and have that experience, I think a lot of people would go for it. And I think the Park Service could also pursue a potentially a shuttle system that takes you, picks you up in Moab and brings you into the park. And so I think it's, it's worthwhile for the community and the state and others 
to pursue as many options as they possibly can. I was just having a, a great conversation with folks from Zion uh, last week, and they were talking about a shuttle system that might take you through Grand Staircase and do a loop mm-hmm. around southwestern Utah so that you can enjoy a whole host of public lands, including Zion National Park. People have to be innovative. There are a lot of really neat things to see in southern Utah. Uh, trust me, I've spent a lot of time there. So moving people around in an efficient way and giving them some certainty on their visit, I don't think that's a bad thing. And the other thing I want to say about that is that you know the state encouraged a lot of visitation to Utah because of the Park Service Centennial. And we're all in this together. And so I really hope that as we try to come up with solutions, just as the state encouraged people to visit the Mighty Five in Utah, I hope that they can be part of the plan for figuring out better transportation systems in this area. But I don't think this is happening in every park, but there are other parks that are feeling the pinch from a lot of visitation. Yellowstone, Glacier, other parks are dealing with this right now too. I think you mentioned Acadia. Um, so, uh, everyone's trying to come up with solutions, but building more roads and more parking lots in some cases is not going to get us there. So we need more creativity. Perhaps a, uh, a marketing plan, something that the park service does not get engaged with, um, in, in directing people to some of the lesser known jewels or, or even some of the off season wonders that can be experienced in the national parks. I know, uh, I, I've kind of, uh, Try and avoid national parks between Memorial Day and Labor Day if I'm not working on assignment um, and go during the rest of the year because they, they really, the crowds do disappear and disperse and uh, it's much more enjoyable. But um, so basically, you're saying that uh, reservations are not a panacea, that uh, we just have to be more creative in, in how we're dealing with these crowds. I'm saying that in some cases, it may, it may very well be the answer. And, and I'm saying that the Park Service already has reservation systems and in some park units. So there are park professionals right now who know how to do this. And so, but not every park is flooded with people and need a reservation system. So it just depends on, on what the situation there is. But when you look at how the visitation has increased in parks like Zion and Arches, it's amazing. You know, even five years ago, they had uh, far, far fewer visitors than they do now. And so it's time to revisit this. I was in Yellowstone uh, last year during the summer, which I vowed to never do in the middle of the <laughs> summer, but I was there. Um, and Mammoth, um, where the park headquarters is in Yellowstone, which isn't even the most, as you, you two know, it's not even the area that has the most sightseeing in it in terms of things that you would want to see, like geysers and, and wildlife. But there were so many people there, you could barely move. Yeah. And so they... They need to figure it out. They need to figure out how to how to get these people through the park and make sure everyone has a good experience, even when there's high visitation. Yeah, you know, uh, let me let me add it. Cage Cove years ago, we did a transportation study. Cage Cove is an 11 mile loop road. It's gets uh, about two million visitors a year in Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and you know, it's um, it takes three or four, sometimes five hours to drive that 11 mile loop road. And we began a transportation planning process to look at the different alternatives. We had about five different alternatives, some more expensive than others, and smart transportation systems and reservations and so forth. But one of the things that we did was very interesting is that we surveyed the, the public to see what they thought. Well, 82% of the 2 million people or whoever, I've forgotten how many people, how many surveys we actually sent out, 82% though liked it just the way it was. 
but what we weren't able to measure was all those people who didn't go, you know, because it was so crowded. And so it's very, my point is, it's very complicated and it's very site specific in many cases. And, and the transportation planning people along with the American public will just have to decide what's acceptable. And the other piece of course is, is damage to resources. We've, our uh, primary responsibility is to make sure that those resources are left unimpaired for future generations by our management. And so we've got to keep that in mind and, and monitor that as, uh, as we move forward. We've been visiting today with Phil Francis, who chairs the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and Kristen Brangle, Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association, discussing current events in the national park system. And I'm sure we could go on for another hour talking about these things because there are a lot of issues out there and they're all very important. Unfortunately, um, we do have to cap it today, but uh, perhaps later this summer we can get back and compare notes on how things have gone. I'd like to thank you both for joining us today. Well, thank you, Gert. Thanks so much. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit YosemiteConservancy.org to find more inspiration. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.